Hi, I'm Ryan Hicks, and this is the Policy Options Podcast. They have the power to shape public opinion and have an impact on elections. Online bots, software that scans social media sites and then sends out automatic messages to users. More and more political parties use them to get their messages out. And while there are benefits to this kind of digital campaign, there are huge risks. Risks that my next guests say could soon outweigh the benefits. Joining me now is Fenwick McKelvey. He is a professor of communication studies at Concordia University here in Montreal. He co-authored an article for Policy Options with Elizabeth Dubois from the University of Ottawa about political bots and how political parties can use them responsibly. Fenwick, welcome to the podcast. It's really great to be here. I gave a very, very small idea about what a political bot is. Can you set the stage, though, uh, a little bit more? Can you tell us what are these bots and give us some examples of how they're used in politics? A bot is a term used to describe an automated actor online. Typically what that means is some sort of account that is programmed to do repetitive or automated tasks. Often, and this is the key part, is that bots are difficult to distinguish from humans. So bots are not only acting online and and active, but also influencing and pretending at times to be humans. Most Canadians would know bots from scalper bots. These are the bots that are buying up those tickets at the last minute so you can't go to the concert you want to. And many Canadians might also be experiencing bots this holiday season because there's concerns about Grinch bots buying hot items before they sell out and then charging a markup for them. So these are the types of programs that are now increasingly part of our online environment and we're trying to understand what their influence is. In terms of politics we talk about four types of bots. Bots that are trying to amplify messages and trying to promote or game social media metrics. We talk about dampener bots or bots that are trying to suppress or exclude certain voices from online communities. We also think of maintenance bots or helper bots that are trying to um, make systems run better online. For that, the best example would be Wikipedia. Wikipedia is full of bots, making sure that little problems, grammars, typos can be corrected on the website. And finally, we're also familiar with what we call transparency bots. These are bots used by journalists or people acting as journalists to raise events. So if someone gets hit on a cycle in Toronto for a time, a bot would tweet that a cyclist had been hurt in an accident. There there are two sides to, to bots you talked about in the article. You said there could be a good side, and you said there could be a bad side. It sounds, sounds to me that the side where maybe political parties are amplifying certain messages or put, trying to intimidate other people online, uh, that's where we need to really have our guard up. Well, bots have really come to public attention in the aftermath of the 2016 presidential election. And that election really showed that there were bots being used, particularly. Um, by alleged Kremlin-backed organizations that were part of a, a wider, widespread program of foreign interference. And it's interesting that in some ways what Elizabeth and I have been trying to struggle with in Canada is saying that there is a lot of public concern right now about bots potentially interfering with elections. We didn't find that necessarily happening in Canada. And then there's a long history of bots also being useful and helpful. And Elizabeth has particularly worked on, say, transparency bots and helper bots. And so thinking about their kind of supporting role. And so we've been trying to strike this balance between thinking about what are some of these problematic risks and ways that social media might 
be failing and incentivizing these bots to game it, and also saying that, well, we're not trying to ban bots or saying that bots are all bad. In fact, it's trying to have this conversation where it's like, what are the particular bots we're worried about? One of the things that you talked about was the 2016 presidential election. You said that we ha haven't seen necessarily anything in Canada to the same extent yet. Um, what about the rest of the world? How does Canada compare to what else is going on in the rest of the world? Well, the more we look into this, the more we're finding evidence that bots were part of wider media campaigns. And so we're not talking about them as being the determining influence, but part of attempts to influence public discourse and discussion. And so Canada is a bit of an outlier in some ways because we haven't seen a large phenomenon of bots being used. Now, that's not to say it hasn't happened. I've heard speculation that Sun News North potentially was using bots to promote its Facebook page. This is just from a report on Candleland. I'm not sure if that's true or not. Uh, we do know that bots were active in the 2015 election. They just weren't necessarily that influential. So I think we're trying to strike this balance between saying that bots exist, they've been problematic in countries like the United States and the United Kingdom and France in their recent election, but we haven't seen that same phenomenon in Canada. But we need to start paying attention to this and be aware that social media can be manipulated and in many ways very easily. And uh, so long as we don't have this conversation, start talking more about bots, we're going to be potentially a victim to their, their abuses. How can someone, if they're online, if they're on Twitter, and how, how can they s notice or tell if maybe there is a, a bot at work? Well, I'd say two things. There's one, you know, you want to look at the account and you can find some like clear tells. Does it have, if it's on Twitter, like an egg? Does it have a picture? Does it have a picture that if you Google for that picture, you can tell they stole it from somewhere? Does it tweet a lot? Does it tweet only about a particular account? Those are good tells. I think the other thing to say is that I don't think it should only be on the public to be looking for bots. And one of the things that I think I'm hoping and Elizabeth and I are working on is trying to make sure there's a conversation because I don't think the solution is just everybody becomes a bot finder because bots are going to only become more sophisticated and more difficult to find. And that's something which I think is going to make it more and more difficult for the average Canadian to be able to distinguish these two things. There needs to be a larger conversation and, and part of that larger, larger conversation it sounds to me is, okay, there's a media literacy part of it where, okay, people just need to be aware uh, about what is going on online. But then you talked about in your article uh, that political parties need to kind of take some responsibility and, and commit to using bots responsibly. What do you think, how can that conversation, how can that kind of commitment come about? Well, first off, when Elizabeth and I were talking about this article, we really were trying to struggle with what can you do? And one of the big problems that we have is attribution. Simply put, we don't know who programs bots, we don't know who pays for bots, we don't know how bots are being used or who, and why they're being used. It's a big question. And the attribution is a large problem in all cybersecurity issues. When we talk about alleged Russian interference, it seems like there's a lot of evidence now, and that's an important threshold that's come about, but we just can't immediately assume that this is the culprit, because it's difficult. And so when we're having this conversation, we realize that you can't stop bots entirely. It's not possible just to remove bots from being online, or the bad bots. So you have to start thinking about, well, how do we narrow that window? 
And how do we say that there's at least some degree of comfort that certain actors aren't involved? And that's where the idea of a code of conduct was coming from. Just the idea that political parties should commit to not using bots for two reasons. One, to make sure that we know that they're not part of the problem. And two, simply for media literacy themselves. You know, I'm not entirely clear about how political parties, how aware they are of their cybersecurity, how protected their databases are from hacks, how much they're using security or two-step authentication in their email accounts. There's a big question mark about just how safe our political parties are from hacking and foreign interference. So the idea with the code of conduct was one, we'd be notifying political parties to be aware of this, and two, trying to get one of those potential actors out of the marketplace of, or out of this production of bots online. And the idea of a code of conduct was something that was brought about by Elections Canada. And they've discussed an idea of code of conduct for political parties. Some of my also work, I look at political data. We have very poor laws about kind of the data uh, oversight on political parties. And you know, it's always been this idea that a code of conduct might be a way of addressing that. Um, and I think it's a good first step for the conversation. And if political parties aren't willing or interested or involved in, in talking about developing a code of conduct, it's of my opinion that maybe regulation is the next step. So I think of this code of conduct as a good place to begin a conversation about how do we deal with bots in part of a kind of a water, wider conversation of just how much this changing media landscape might be hindering successful elections in Canada's future. So who needs to take that first step though? Is it Elections Canada that needs to be the facilitator here? I think Elections Canada has a really important role. And they have time and I think if they get the ball rolling, they could bring together you know, the types of participants, the type of concerned parties that we identified in our articles, political parties, academics, journalists. I think that's a real opportunity. I also don't think there's anything stopping political parties from declaring that they're going to only use bots um, for good themselves. And I'm really waiting, and I would hope that a political party in Canada might take the initiative to commit to a bot-free or commit to some of the recommendations we say about, you know, particularly making sure that some of their bots in social media are responsible as well as making sure that some of the targeting and profiling is, is responsible. I think nothing's stopping a political party from taking that first step. So we have an election, a federal election coming up in 2019. Uh, what's at stake if, if no one does anything, if no one comes to the table to talk about a code of conduct or comes to the table to say, like, okay, we're going to use bots responsibly. What do you think is at stake? I think the first off is recognition right now of what largely has protected Canada from, you know, more severe forms of kind of media manipulation has been goodwill. And I'm really aware that what, in light of what the U.S. Con congressional inquiry, where they had these social media companies in front of them, you know, the Russian, the alleged Kremlin-backed targeting wasn't particularly technically sophisticated. What it was is it found issues uh, that were politically sensitive, right? This, they targeted communities often on lines of race and really exacerbated social tension. I think I look at Canada and I just look at the same opportunities we have. I'm in Montreal. I grew up with French-English divide. There's great concern about Islamophobia. We also have concern just about, say, the fact that we're a multicultural country and that there are all different, there are many different countries that might have a stake in the outcome of our election. All that seems to me that these are tensions that could be um, fanned 
by a bad actor, willing to just not play by the rules. That's always been one of the concerns about politics is this idea of dog whistling, the idea of creating wedge, wedge issues. That's what, from my speculation, some of the media manipulation in 2016 was about. So my concern is that it will make politics meaner. It will make online differ, di discourse more hostile. That has had an adverse effect, particularly on women. And you can think about the role of female politicians, just how harder it is to be a female politician because of just how hostile that discourse has come. So I think first off is just will make our uh, election worse, less pleasant to be part of. Was it going to tip the election? Probably not. But will it also mean that voters might be making less informed decisions or be getting news uh, that's less reliably recommended for them? Certainly. And I think that that's one of the parts this is also important is for journalists. You know, I think a lot of the social media analytics of what's trending has been largely kind of uncritically raised. It's like this is important because it's popular on social media. I don't think we can assume that anymore. So I think that what we're, what the potential risk is is twofold. Is one, Canadian discourse might be more hostile, might be more negative. And two, we might just also see that there's more incentive and opportunity for these types of media manipulators. And that could really just undermine the kind of role of journalism in elections. We see that so much in, in journalism where uh, sometimes in stories, uh, a, a journalist might qualify something based on the number of likes on Facebook or based on the number of shares or uh, retweets on Twitter. And, and essentially what you're saying is, you know, that could all just be fake. Well, one of the things is, so this op-ed comes from a report that Elizabeth Dubois and I did for the Computational Propaganda Project at Oxford Internet, Oxford Internet Institute. And so it's part of a, a, um, a nine-country scan. So we're just one country. So I recommend if anybody's interested in this to check out the report, check out the other reports, check out that project because it's really doing great work. But one of the things we found funny, we didn't mention in the report, is that when I was thinking, and I think I had identified a bot, and then I was searching for it, I found that that bot's tweet was part of a CBC story. You know, and that's not, I think, the fault of any journalist. I just think that that's an example of what, what could be the effect of that. And I think that that's what every... Um, bot right now is probably trying to do is make it so it's more influential online or uh, make some story more look more popular than it is and I think to me is that we well we know that's possible and that could still be possible but what I'm not really good at is predicting what could potentially be gamed I mean I didn't necessarily I didn't see this someone told me in 2015 that this would be the world I lived in in 2017 I wouldn't have believed it I mean my whole professional practice as someone who studies political communication was profoundly affected um, it's something that's caused me to reflect just beyond bots in general. It's just like, what's going on? And I think looking at the fragility of our media landscape, you know, the decline of journalism, the uncritical design cultures at times in major social media companies and the ways that how they rank information, you know, it's only retroactively found out to be really problematic, um, really has me questioning just what's the nature of um, how we're going to make sure that media is part of our democracy. Well, and it sounds also, I mean, you said it, that journalists need to be more aware. They almost have to have social media literacy in terms of them being able to look and see, okay, maybe this tweet is not an authentic tweet. And I mean, I wonder if, you know, if, if that is something that needs to be more instilled in journalists now that this landscape is is not only changing so quickly, but also... 
as someone who was a reporter and a political reporter, you're moving so quickly with daily breaking news. And obviously, you need your you're sticking to standards and verifying your sources, but there are clearly ways now that uh, make it a lot more difficult to verify those sources when you're under tight deadlines and in this very fast-moving landscape. The pace of social media has really been something that we've often talked about in kind of political communications, this idea of a permanent campaign and the, the expectation that you're always part of it, always participating in it. And I think it's those kind of real expectations that um, we, we, we need to be questioning, right? What's the advantage? I think there's pretty clear evidence that being the first to report a story isn't necessarily the best coverage. But we know that if you're first, you start trending, you become, and so there's an incentive to be first because of some of the logic of social media. So how do you fix that? I don't know. I really, but I do think that this is where the where I'm in is thinking about what are what are the ways that popularity is being, what forms of popularity and attention are being incentivized online, what pressures are they putting on journalists? Something which I don't study, you know, I study political communication, but you know, what pressures are they putting on journalists? I think the other point is. A weird moment for me in terms of a shift, because I've always joked as I studied digital stuff. What's digital stuff anymore? The internet's eating the world. And there are really good journalists doing really fantastic work that are making really good bots that are making great stories. And I think one of the concerns I have is that if we just keep thinking about this as a digital story or as an internet story, we're going to overlook the fact that internet is first, digital is the primary way Canadians get their news. or one of the primary ways, television is certainly important, but you can think that these are very, very important things that, and you just can't necessarily say, you know, when we talk about television, you know, we just don't have a television reporter. It's like, I think we need in Canada really incentivize and think through just how much we've thought of digital as something new, and, and it's not that, it's the status quo. And so I think that having reporters and having digital skills and hiring new reporters and making sure that reporters that are adept at this are encouraged and supported uh, is a really important first step. Well, I mean, and and now fundamental uh, journalism skills should include being aware of what's a bot or not. JSource also has a great piece about how to program a bot and create a bot. And I think that like a journalist can do really fantastic work if they program a bot that makes data that's not um, easy to parse and puts it into a kind of format that's better for data journalism. Uh, I think that these are all parts of the conversation. And to me, it's just so interesting because I've always would joke that I don't study journalism, you know, because this is the thing is that, you know, when you study the digital, it just is so it's all encompassing. My official title is Information Communication Technology Policy in Canada. Like, it knows no limits. So I've always joked that, like, you know, I don't know that much about journalism. and, And the way I'm interested in this bots is in some ways trying to understand how this media system works. And and, but now more and more, you're just thinking that there is something about journalism which is really fundamental. It's a really about kind of quality of information and standards for that. And so much of what we think about as the companies that are profitable and have been incentivized don't have that much engagement with journalism. And I think that there is a need to just really respect that that professional journalism is important and it certainly it needs to change and adapt, but it certainly shouldn't be ignored and they shouldn't be excluded from, I think, the conversations about how we're going to make this media system better for all Canadians.
The only other part of the piece that we talked about, there's two things we talked about in the piece. And the other part of the piece, which was really, I think my favorite part of the piece, was about what I was kind of, and it's kind of, a, kind of a weaselly way of doing it, but about the kind of bots that potentially could be in parties. And, and really what I mean by that is data, data analytics. So my background's a lot in data-driven campaigning. So how do political parties make decisions? So you have to think that before the writ drops, before an election's called, every political party, worth their salt, has been monitoring their list of electorate polling them to understand what the voting tendencies are, and then now using what we would call predictive analytics to make recommendations about the likelihood of a voter to support the party and be persuaded for that party. That's standard practice, I think, for all parties. I know for sure that the Liberal Party in the 2015 election was doing that. I don't know how much those systems might be injecting forms of bias. And we have a conversation nascent in Canada about artificial intelligence policy. Bots, I think, are part of that. You know, how do we think of bots as part of this AI conversation? And for the amount of money we're investing in developing AI, we don't see that same level of investment for AI policy for forward-thinking uh, approaches to talk about its social, cultural, and political consequences. And to me, in particular, I think that one of the ways that we need to be aware is that political parties are going to be using data and artificial intelligence to be making decisions about what voters they contact, who they encourage to vote, and I'm not entirely convinced that there couldn't be room for bias and error that include that exclude certain people from participating in the voter process. And that to me was this moment where it was two separate parts of the world, this bot stuff and my data-driven campaigning stuff, really being together, and it's about, in, in the end of the day, a judgment call. And what are the ways that political parties are judging and ranking voters? And I think it's high time that we have a little bit more awareness of how political parties are making those decisions because I think there's a real risk that voters could be left out and that we might be um, having it so that the democracy is just this number of games of getting out that smaller and smaller number of voters to win an election rather than, I think, encouraging wide and robust participation, which I think is my goal. And having a bit more of a, a transparent and open conversation because I feel like this kind of issue is something that's very much seen sometimes as something happening you know, behind closed doors, uh, you know, maybe like some... IT guy for a political party just like in the basement of the party headquarters plugging away you know, all of these bots and all of these digital tools whereas you know, other when it comes to other issues around how elections are run we talk about them openly we post uh, donations online uh, that kind of things so. you know we've had a long conversation about voting and whether we can vote online and, and I agree with the consensus that you don't because paper ballots are great and they're secure. And so, but it's amazing to me the attention voting has gotten and yet the real logic or the core now of political parties is their data and their data management. And those are, continue to be very missing you know, and, and they'll come up during the 2015 election. Like during the 2015 election, they'll be like, data, that's the new killer app. Or like, data, this is going to... And it's not that. I mean, they're not, this is not this end-all and be-all. But it's part of how political parties are making decisions. And I think that there are ways that this technology is moving really quickly, the ways that these systems potentially could be gamed or exploited, the ways that they could be hacked, uh, are all part of a kind of ever-growing call for me that political parties need better 
data laws and data conduct. And so that's where the code of conduct comes from. It's not simply about just banning bots, but it's also making sure that their data analytics and their predictive analytics, which is something that's bot-like, which is bot-like, which is the form of artificial intelligence, is something that's doing just as much good as we'd hope it to be doing. Okay. Fenwick McKelvey, uh, thanks for joining me. A real pleasure to have this conversation. Fenwick McKelvey is a professor with Concordia University. He wrote an article for Policy Options along with Elizabeth Dubois about the responsible use of bots in politics. I'm Ryan Hicks. Thanks for listening to the Policy Options podcast.